Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel, and we have a bunch to talk to, uh, talk about and get into, Stu. Uh, this week is the NFL Draft. It is a really interesting time for college football fans who get to see where, what the NFL thinks of maybe their favorite players, but there's also some real interesting stuff bubbling up. On the playoff front, you and I have talked a lot about the potential for expansion. It has come up almost at every turn, and the CFP folks decided to give it more oxygen. So I don't know which scenario you're buying into. Tell us what you think is real. Tell us where you think this is headed, and is it something that you're excited about? Well, um, as you know, I've wrestled, I've gone back and forth over the past several years about whether I was pro eighteen playoff or not. I think in the last couple of years, I've, I've definitely, um, you know, gone to the, to the point where I just don't, I, I think you have to do it at this point because it's become too stale. Whole parts of the country don't feel invested in it, uh, especially out here in the West where they keep missing it. Um, but what, what what caught us all by surprise, I mean, first of all, they never offer up specifics uh, voluntarily. So to send out this email where like, you know, oh, we, we had our regular meetings this week, um, nothing to see here except, oh, by the way, we have a subcommittee and they explored 63 different scenarios for possible expansion, 8, 10, 12, 16 teams possibly. Uh, we're going to talk about it some more. So I think the, the main takeaway is this is no longer a theoretical thing. This is no longer, well, maybe five years from now when the contract expires, maybe possibly we'll expand. This was a not even subtle, yeah, we're doing it, and we just got to figure out what we want to do, which format. And I don't think any of us that cover the sport had any, um, I don't think we, any, we thought anything more than eight was even on the table. Um, that's just kind of college football. So why would they suddenly go from four to 16? But you don't float that stuff out there for no reason. Um, unless you float, unless you float it out there, be like, well, you'd be careful for 16 and then you settle at eight, which isn't as, as daunting. And maybe that, maybe that has something to do with that. I think that has something to do with it. I think a trial balloon, see how people react. But, but one thing that's definitely changed is... I do think last year's COVID-affected bowl season, you know, I mean, it had been building this way for a little while, right, with te- players opting out and whatnot, but you had whole teams opt out of bowl season last year. You had the Rose Bowl 
just get moved to a random NFL stadium, I think there's a concession that that is that the non-playoff bowl games just don't really hold much value anymore to teams and players, and they've got to find a way to re-engage those teams. I mean, you can't have uh, you know, Florida plays in the Cotton Bowl last year. That's supposed to be one of the major bowls, and half their team opted out. There's an incentive to want to play in the postseason. And so that's my only thought in terms of why they might consider going even bigger. I think everybody just kind of assumes that the group of five will get a, a, a spot in this uh, just because I think you're setting yourself up for lawsuits and antitrust investigations if you say the power five get an automatic bid, but nobody else. However, they may feel like the power five might feel like, well, we're not giving them one of the eight spots uh, when when the you know third best team in the SEC might be considerably better than their team. So, okay, we're comfortable giving them an automatic spot, but only if there's five at-large bids or eight at-large bids or whatever. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up on the opt-out part of this, uh, one of our editors had asked me to reach out to some NFL sources, not just um, scouts and also scouting directors, but also agents, and say, find out if... And the way it was asked of me was, if you have an expanded playoff, would that create more opt-outs, potentially? And everybody I spoke to, one gave like the hesitation, well, maybe if there's a, if there's a team that's been, been in the playoff a couple of years and then you're a lower seed, a 10-plus seed, then maybe. But the people I talked to, including a, somebody who's pretty high up in this NFL scouting world, said this, and I'll read it to you. I would find that really hard to believe that it would cause more opt-outs, whether it's four, eight, or, or 16 teams. It's the playoff. Man, that's why you go to the school. Now, if they're only going to the campingworld.com bowl or something like that, then I would understand the opting out. But this is, as a you know, as an agent put it, I was like, I asked him that specific question, and he said, I actually think that would keep more kids playing because if you're a school that gets in, man, that's everything you dream of as a player there. And that is much different. Um, so yeah, I I've been in favor of the of expanding for a while. I don't know how I would feel for sixteen teams necessarily, um, but I do think it would make things more um, more interesting for sure. Would it would it create a different outcome? I don't know. I mean, would it just basically devolve back to? Well, it's just two or three weeks later and you get Alabama Clemson, perhaps. But look, we've seen some crazy stuff happen at times. It's a longer season. There is also more chance for uh, injury. I do wonder about when the season gets longer and we're talking about, you know, Trey Lance and North Dakota State. We're playing 16 games. Um, the college football season has gotten longer and longer, you know, is that something you're going to have more pushback against and how do they do that? Because a lot of the other teams are not going to give up their other, their other games or their other home dates. Yeah, this definitely gets very complicated, more complicated than I think you, you would assume for, for all those reasons. I mean, that's, that's interesting that the NFL people didn't seem all that concerned that guys might opt out of a playoff. They didn't think it They didn't think they would. That may be true. Um, I would think agents might be telling their guys, hey, you're this is a big risk. You might play four straight. You know, if it's a 16-team playoff, you could play four straight, really physical. I mean, this isn't 
I mean, when you play a 12-game season, there's a couple weeks that you're playing somebody that's not that, you know, imposing. This is four straight games against the best teams in the country, and then you got to go straight from that into draft training. So I could see some agents being like, you might want to think about skipping out to save your body. But I, the thing we, nobody's talking about is, you know, we're about to have this draft, and it doesn't seem like any of the guys who opted out of the season are being negatively affected, like Jamar Chase. No, it seems like, uh, no, I, I want to correct you. There are a few guys where there is some stuff that happened where I think there are some personnel people who are a little, give it a little hesitation on them. It's the guys it's not affecting is Jamar Chase, who came, went to his pro day and wowed people. Micah Parsons went to his pro day and wowed people. Uh, Rashawn Slater has done really well in the draft process. There are a few guys who opted out, and there is definitely a little bit of concern with some of those guys. You mean the lower tier guys? Guys who we might have thought, guys who college football fans know about, who we might have thought, oh, that guy's a really productive player, or that guy, you know, seems like he's, you know, it's like we know about him. Though There are a few of them, especially at the receiver group, um, who I think because of how 2020 unfolded, I think there is some a little more hesitance about those guys than maybe there probably would have been if they had played the whole year in a normal year. I'm just wondering if, you know, we all assumed last year was an aberration because of COVID, but I'm just wondering if we're going to get to August and some of the top players in the country are going to are going to opt out of this season. Uh, it's all about injury risk. And I, I don't think you know, unless you're a top 20 guy, like if you're if you're Jamar Chase and Jamar Chase is rare, he won a national title as a sophomore. If you're Micah Parsons, maybe. Um, you know, I don't think it helped Greg Rousseau. I mean, I don't know what he would have done in 2020 as a player, but he had a he had a huge 2019, 15 and a half sacks. Um, you know, people were talking about him as a possible like I remember, you know, Daniel Jeremiah and some of the people who were really plugged in on the draft initially talked about him as possible top 10, top 15 guy. It's possible he goes there. But I think one of the things I've heard from talking to people who work in the NFL is they don't, you know, this is a guy who probably needed to play um, because it's a little more, uh, it's more uncertain in terms of he hasn't played that much. So I think there are guys like that who, you know, it's like, and and you'll you'll also get players who get bad advice who, you know, there are guys who opted out. and, And honestly, you know, this year was a really crazy year because of COVID. So it wasn't a normal uh, year. But I still think you will have guys like the also like the Christian McCaffrey's and the Leonard Fournette's who opted out at the end late in the year. I mean, there are going to be those players, and especially at, the, at that position, probably, too, where, like you said, the injury risk is not insignificant. Um, but there was just a lot of stuff piled onto it. And you know, again, it's like who showed up in shape, who showed up and looked like they really um, did a lot of work. And then who was like, there are guys who was like when they showed up at maybe their pro days or things where people were kind of underwhelmed by what they saw. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So let's say they go to 10 or 12, and Andy Staples did a really good job in his story that went up Monday on The Athletic, which you can read if you go to theathletic.com slash theaudible for a 20% discount, uh, where he used past seasons to illustrate what each of these size brackets would look like. And I've never given any thought to anything beyond eight. So it was interesting to see, you know, what would intrigue me a little bit about the 10 and the 12 is because, you know, there is some concern about what this does to the regular season. And last year's Alabama, Florida SEC championship, both those teams know they're going in the playoff regardless. Um, There's a bit of an incentive to get the buy, you know, the top teams would get a buy. There's a big elephant in the room on all this, Bruce. You're going to ask the players to play an extra two, three games. You're going to get to maybe 16, 17 games and still keep the rules the same about players don't make money. Um, That's a little bit thorny to me that we're now asking you to play the same length of a season as an NFL player. NFL players get paid millions of dollars to take that risk on your body. Uh, College players do not. And uh, I don't know. I, I think there's a... There's a bit of an ethical question there. Well, now that you have name, image, and likeness coming down the pipeline, maybe that is a bigger marketing opportunity for some of the schools to also feed into. I mean, that definitely alleviates some of the pressure for sure. But if you remember, it's you know, if you remember the um, the the Pac-12 United was that what it was called uh, when during the the, the whether they're going to return or not. I mean, one of their demands was revenue sharing. Like the idea of revenue sharing, you know, getting part of the TV deal is starting to enter players' minds. Now, we kind of laughed it off at the time because it's not like they were going to enact that in time for the for the season that was about to start in a couple months. But I could see that becoming um, a longer term question. Um, OK, I'm so we're both we're both on board with eight. Right. I mean, I think I think at this point, remember, the playoff was designed when the when the 14 playoff was adopted. There were still six major conferences. The Big East was still a major conference. Shortly after they announced this thing, the Big East imploded. And now you have five conferences vying for four spots. And that, to me, has always been awkward because it's just put such a stigma on the one that gets left out, especially if it's, in the Pac-12's case, several years in a row. And that alone, I think, is reason to go to the system with the automatic berths. I talked about it in my Pac-12 story. I mean... So much of the Pac-12's image problem is that they keep missing the playoffs. So if there's an automatic berth, there goes that. 
I do think you have to have a group of five automatic birth, though, because I, I don't think you can justify why these conferences get an automatic birth, but these other FBS conferences have no avenue. Um, so, so I think you and I are both on board with that. Um, any concern about what it does to the regular season? No, not. Um, I think from my perspective, the biggest challenge is the injury risk of a longer season. I think what it does to the regular season, I think, you know, we have teams that have been talked about getting in um, after losing a game, after losing two games. Um, Here's a question for you, and this is like when Iowa whips Ohio State a few years ago, when Purdue whips Ohio State, um, that game feels more significant because you think okay that knocks them out of the playoff that's the but what we've seen i feel like and i know you and i sat in the green room at fox in the avocado room a a bunch of times where it was like people write off teams when they lose games because it's like you know it's like one and done is kind of the vibe but it really doesn't always it rarely works that way so you know i think while that's there I don't think that's what college football really is at this point because the season's already longer. It's not a 10-game season now. It's it's really a 13-game season for everybody. So I don't, you know, my biggest hesitation, like I said, is getting around the piece of the added injury risk. Um, I don't think, you know, the season, the way the, the way we watch college football games, I mean, again, 2020 was a red herring year because of all sorts of reasons. But I don't remember looking back at that. And if I said to you, Stu, what was the best three best regular season games in 2020? I'm guessing one of them you would say would be Coastal uh, BYU, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what your other two would have been. but Well, the, at the time, one of the best games was absolutely Clemson-Notre Dame. The Notre Dame fans rushing the field. Clemson hadn't lost a regular season game in three years. It ended up having no impact on anything because they played again and both teams made the playoff. Um, so, but like, I, you know, like I said in this roundtable we did today, we're, the choices here are not going back to the way things were. Like, for instance, in the BCS, I mean, there were, there was a 2012 season it led in, in one day, Oregon and Kansas State, who were undefeated, both got upset, big upsets, and they were done. Like the stakes of that one loss. We don't really see that much anymore where one loss knocks you out before. It's not the BCS you know, era anymore. Championship. Yeah. Right. The only one I remember like that was when Ohio State lost with Ezekiel Elliott and Joey Bosa and all those guys lost to Michigan State at home. And uh, it never made, made it back. It was too late to get back in the mix. But that's because that cost them the division. Um, it's kind of, you know... You're actually in the strange thing about the playoff is you're better off losing to some random team in the middle of the season because you can still turn around and win your division than losing to the other team you're in contention with for the division. So, you know, I've always worried about with a bigger playoff that you would lose that what makes college football Saturdays special where one game can change the whole season. But the flip, the, the and that might happen to some extent. But like I said, right now you have whole conferences who are out of the mix in October and that's, you know, there's going to be more teams who still are in the hunt just by the virtue of they could make, they could be eight and three and they still have a chance to win their conference. So they're still in the hunt. And I think that that's uh, generally a positive thing. Now, I will say, I do think where people aren't 
thinking about enough is, I mean, the teams that are going to benefit from this are the teams that are already in the mix every year. You know, how many more playoffs would Georgia have made under Kirby Smart already if there was an 18 playoff? I think they finished number five two years in a row. This is not a good thing for my alma mater, for Purdue, for Kansas State. For Wait a minute. Uh, I think Arizona it is a good State. thing for your alma mater. Because if there's a if there is a 16 team playoff and your team a couple of years ago when I remember our our crew did they they beat Iowa on the road to clinch and I remember that was a weird year because they lost like all their non conference games but I think you can at that point you have a chance to get in if you are the division champs of a honestly a not great division. 16 teams, yeah. 16 teams would probably be good for them, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of schools out there. You have more margin for error. Pretty, there are a lot of schools out there that are pretty good at football, but in an eight-team model are probably almost never going to make the playoff. And But for them, like, I mean, this is going to be the end for, for a lot of bowl games. I'm not saying they're going to go away entirely, but at this point, you know, once you get to eight teams, the automatic bids... Nobody's going to give a crap about the Outback Bowl, the Citrus Bowl, any of that. For Northwestern, it's still a really big deal to make one of those games. Their fans travel to those games. They consider that a successful season. That's going to go away. And you're just going to have teams that are basically playing for the NIT every year. They go eight and, you know, Northwestern goes eight and four. That's a pretty good season for them. They go eight and four in this model. They're, they're an NIT, the equivalent of a basketball NIT team. Um, and I don't think people have given that much consideration, but I also think people don't really care. We, we care about the race for the national I think the football people are going to care because they're still going to watch those games. The gamblers are still going to watch those games. They're still going to get those bowl trips. Um, I don't know if they are going to get the. I mean, I think that the bowls that will... I mean, I assume the Rose Bowl and the and the Sugar Bowl, et cetera, will get absorbed into this new playoff in some format. I don't know that the Citrus Bowl, Gator Bowl, I don't know those bowls are going to make it because those are bowls that depend on fans traveling. And is your, are you really going to travel to watch your team play a, a, a thing that is just like not... I mean, some people say they're already meaningless. I don't agree with that. Uh, but they might become pretty meaningless if uh, basically it's about... I mean, it's like the NFL, right? Nobody... If you go 10 and 6 in the NFL, that's a pretty good season. But if it doesn't qualify you for the playoff, you consider it a failure. Uh, and I think that that will be the that'll certainly be the mentality among the Floridas, the Georgias. But that's the way it is already. Kind of already that's is. the way it is already. Steve. Yeah. That's it, now it's going to be that way for everybody. Oklahoma, you any team. But it's but but it's not. I mean, I mean, I get what you're saying, but think about it this way: you just spent five minutes talking about how. Parts of the country, you know, like if you're, and again, weird year 2020, but if you're in the Pac-12, Oregon and USC becomes a nationally interesting game if both teams are six and two at one point. That is different. Um, so I wouldn't say, look, if you lose, then the bowl game is is a much lower consolation prize. But that was like, I, again, and USC is probably the wrong example. You picked your alma mater and I'm picking the school that's nearest to me, but like, how many game, bowl games has USC gone to 
and just slept walk through it. Like there was a point when Pete was the head coach where it was like, ah, we're going to the Rose Bowl again. You know, it was like they've done that again. But it was like, you know, we saw we saw them go get blown out by like Iowa and Nebraska and I think Wisconsin. And then there was Lane and El Paso in like, you know, in a down jacket up to his eyeballs. You know, it's like you get that vibe where some of these other teams, yeah, they don't want to be there. But that's been that way for a while, um, I think. And I think that's why we're here. I think that the AD, I mean, ADs were always the ones to defend the bowl games. What a great experience they are. And I just think that collectively they've come to accept now, yeah, this this doesn't work. In, in 2021, there's just not, that they've lost value. They've lost meaning because of the playoff. The, you know, if your star players don't care enough to play, why should the fans care about those games? Why would they get on a plane and travel and stay in a hotel for those games? Um Anyway, I, I do think that, look, sometimes the conference championship games can be very anticlimactic. I was at a Pac-12 title game a couple years ago, Washington against Utah. First of all, it was an awful game. It was like 9-3. to three. It was 7-6. to um, six. Those, teams were seven, those teams were 9-3, and three, and so nobody in the rest of the country cared. But if that game were for a spot in the playoff, right, that's, you've, you've already increased the, the interest in that considerably. And if there are... You know, if that, and then if the and working backwards, if the race for those two spots comes down to the last week, then those last few weeks of the Pac-12 season are very meaningful because you've got playoff implications on the line, and so that's why that's why this is headed to eight. I'm fascinated by why those bigger numbers were included and and how viable those may may be. We'll have to see. I think these discussions are going to become very real at the conference meetings in the spring, and then the playoff committee. I mean, the the playoff um, commissioners. Are supposed to meet again in June. Again, we I was operating the assumption that if this was going to happen, it wasn't going to happen until 2025. But putting that press release out tells me it's now on the table. Hancock said not this year or next year, but the year after, I think 20 the 2023 season is now very much in play. Let's talk draft. Let's talk. How did Mac Jones, who all of last season. I mean, he had a great season, but I think college fans generally felt like he's kind of a product. Like, first of all, he was a step down from Tua, and then he was kind of a product of playing with Devontae Smith and Najee Harris and all these great offensive linemen. The 49ers, by all accounts, are very much thinking about taking him with the number three pick, which would be even higher than Tua went last year. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Are the 49ers crazy, or did we all just sleep on Mac Jones? Uh, I think the 49ers are very intrigued by this guy as they think is NFL ready. So I did a big story on The Athletic last week, a draft confidential, where I talked to two dozen, basically a, most of them were position coaches, some of them were scouts. Um, but one of the things that came up with Mac Jones was the way NFL quarterback coaches see him as a very high floor guy, maybe a lower ceiling guy, but a high floor guy. And if you have to win now, they think he is more ready system wise 
and will have a, a lesser transition than any of the quarterbacks, including Trevor Lawrence. I mean, I'm not saying they said he's a better prospect than Trevor Lawrence. It's just the the principles that he was running, the command he had of the offense, he was way better than everybody in his interviews um, with teams on what he knows. People really like his accuracy. Now, the challenge with him is he does not have an elite arm and he's definitely not an elite athlete. And so where that comes back is, and this was a coach I talked to who's been in the league for a long time who said, uh, I he was more, thinks he's more ready than the other guys. He goes, if I have to go eight and eight or get to eight and eight to save our jobs, you know, he's going to be a guy I'd be very interested in. And the thing that they look at is, well, he's going to have to get his feet right uh, basically every time because he just does not have the arm talent to make a lot of wow throws where that's not to say he can't do it, but people like what they see from him. It's just the upside is not the upside of, say, Trey Lance, who a lot of people think has the most upside of all these quarterbacks. I mean, it's a really interesting group of five guys, you know, for the most part, it's five, where it's Trevor, who we've seen a lot of, whose system maybe isn't you know really a real NFL system, but people feel like he can learn it. His arm is really good. It's not a great arm, but it's a really good arm. And every, he checks off all the boxes. And then you start getting in the other ones where it's like, hey, you know, here's Zach Wilson, really good arm talent, had a great 2020, albeit against lesser competition. But there's definitely some concern about Zach Wilson. And then you get into Trey Lance, who had one big year against much lesser competition, People love his arm, but they're like, yeah, there's some. he's got to really clean up some of his mechanics, but they love all the football stuff. And then you get the guy we probably know, you know, next to Trevor Lawrence, know the best, which is Justin Fields. And people are all over the map on Justin Fields. And I don't understand it. I really don't. But I also have to, any notion that I knew better than the NFL about these quarterbacks went out the window with Josh Allen, who I just was so puzzled why he was getting the uh, you know the attention and the hype that he was given just how mediocre his college production was and here we are you know he's he's established himself so I now have to step put my college hat off and say well these guys are paid a lot of money to to project things that maybe you can't see necessarily on the tape but Justin Fields is a guy who has the tape and Literally, his his second, you know, did not have a great national championship game, but the game before that against Clemson, it was a masterpiece. Some of the throws he made in that game were unbelievable, and so and it wasn't like it came out of nowhere. The entire no, but it wasn't. But season. there's also some there's also some there's some really good tape. There's some not so good tape. Now look, you can say the same about Zach Wilson. I could say but, Trevor uh, Lawrence had you know a terrible that, national know, championship game against LSU, but you look at the whole body of work. I think the thing that I've heard is people are a little concerned, not a lot, but a little concerned about how well he sees the field in terms of what they've seen from him in the offense. There's some things that give him a little pause, um, but it's not like people are saying, oh, he's going to fall out of the first round. I just think it may be a case of there are other guys that they feel uh, are either more ready to win now or feel a little more comfortable with. Well, I wonder if the 49ers thing is kind of unique in that normally if a team has the number three pick, that means they're, they've are they been pretty terrible and they need to completely rebuild and they want to build around a guy who could be you know, a possible Hall of Fame quarterback. 
I don't know that that's the case here. I think the 49ers were in the Super Bowl two years ago. They had terrible injury luck last year. And they're looking at, okay, here's a guy who could come in and get us back to the Super Bowl pretty quickly. And maybe they're just not thinking. I mean, if you're – you no longer necessarily have to think about 10, 15 years down the road. Like, who can I, who can help us right now? Because that, that's how you keep your job. If it were another team in that spot, maybe this wouldn't even be a discussion. Rate these quarterbacks in two categories. I'm going to have you do it twice. The first one is the one you think will be the best – and the second one is rank the order of the ones you think have the least chance of busting. So it's it's the five. We're it's very about. hard because I don't know anything about Trey Lance. The so all Trey, I know I'm about Trey you, Lance is what you've told me and you've been raving about him for two years. Well, I'm going to give you the Trey Lance thing. So here's what people who've coached him, and I have a story that I'll run on The Athletic later this week about this. Um, as good as his arm is, and his arm is really, really good. It's not Josh Allen great. It's not quite, obviously, Pat Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers great, but it's right below that. Um, is he can run. Uh, also, he's knows an, he knows a pro-style system. He's used to turning his back to the defense and, and the things that come with a play-action game. The things that I've heard from in his meetings are A-plus football intelligence, A-plus um, a plus character, and those are not insignificant. The things that they have pause on are just hasn't played a lot, and also, um, and is his mechanics can can get a little sloppy, and those are things that they need to see more consistency. For instance, when they played the one game they did play this year against Central Arkansas, he was about fifty percent, and there was a bunch of throws that NFL quarterbacks don't miss that he was missing, and I think that was like oof. You know, I think that gave some people a little a little hesitation, but there's other stuff where people love him. And I would say because of the intangible stuff I've heard about him and how intelligent he is, I would be surprised. I'm not saying he's going to turn into, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes or what Josh Allen is now, but I'd be surprised if he was a bust character wise, work ethic wise. I just. I'm not saying he's going to be the greatest quarterback, but I don't like I would have him um, if I was going to say rank the guys who have the chance to bust or not really look like a top 10 pick. I would say I would put him right after Trevor in that. Okay, I I I could see that. Um, I think he definitely has. So you're saying other than Trevor, he has the least chance of being a bust. I just think because of the the physical physical tools plus the intangibles, one of the things that one of the coaches met, made a point of, he goes, if things are going to shit for your team, like, and this is what it was with with uh, Josh uh, Josh Allen in his first year, he's still athletic enough and big enough where he can run and and kind of move move the chains a little bit. Uh, Justin Fields can certainly do that, and Trey Lance can do that. Mac Jones obviously can I cannot do that, and Zach Wilson, while he's athletic, probably won't last because he's not a physically big guy like those other two guys, and so that's where there's there's some concern on that. That's why I just think, um, to me, the most intriguing of the five guys is Zach Wilson. So um, I was gonna say you know, the, Zach Wilson is my. I'm not saying he can't be successful; they all could be successful, but he has the biggest chance of being a bust, and here's why. He, it reminds me a little bit of Mitch Trubisky where, and, and by the way, when I make these comparisons, it has nothing to do with their skill set, trajectory-wise. 
you know, Mitch Trubisky didn't do anything, and then he had that one season, and suddenly he was a top three pick. Um, Zach Wilson, a year ago this time, I remember looking back at the Athlon, you know, where they do the anonymous scouting report, which we now do in the state of the programs, uh, and the guy was like, I'm not even sure he's going to win the job. That That's kind of where he was at that point in his career. He had a great season, but let's not forget, BYU had to really by no fault of their own, had to completely dumb down their schedule to be even able to play last season. So he basically spent the season picking apart uh, Sunbelt teams and, uh, you know, whatnot. The best team they played was Coastal Carolina. He didn't have a great game that day. So he may have, you know, all the physical tools and everything, but I just, to me, you're taking the biggest risk there on a guy who, if they had played the schedule they were supposed to play last year, which I believe had four Pac-12 teams on it, um, and I think a couple other Power 5 teams, we might not even be talking about them right now. Yeah, here's this, here's one of the coaches, what they told me from the NFL. You don't see him in a tight pocket a lot of times, and our league is a tight pocket league. He's not the biggest guy, but he has an arm. He can really rip it. I love his talent, but there's a lot of risk there. Now, another coach made a really interesting point, and said there's some stuff that reminds him of Patrick Mahomes, but he said you got to think of it as not the Patrick Mahomes we think of now as the one winning the Super Bowl, the one coming out of Texas Tech where a lot of people were looking at going, ooh, there's some bad picks and there's some bad decision-making here and there was some inconsistency. And this guy made a good, what I thought was a good point. He said Pat Mahomes went to the Chiefs where he could learn behind Alex Smith and he had Andy Reid, who's arguably as good an offensive mind as the NFL has, um, instead, Zach Wilson's likely to go to the Jets, which does not have like anybody he can learn behind, has way less skill talent around him, and does not have Andy Reid. They're going to have you know a relatively inexperienced offensive coordinator running the show. And on top of that, Zach Wilson's in New York, and so if you start not being so good, it's going to get it's going to get messy in a hurry. So I think that's where that's why that one's going to be very interesting to see. I'm not saying it can't work, but it's going to be an uphill battle. That that's the part that feels kind of kiss of death to me. All right, Bruce. One of the one of the most interesting parts of the story was you got a lot into went pretty deep into the receivers. It's an excellent class of receivers. I think we all know Jamar Chase is going to go very high, and we know all about the two Alabama guys, Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle. In talking to people, who's who's the next in line? Well, the next in line, Stu, gets further down. I mean, you know, there's a few people who like Rashad Bateman. They worry about he looked a lot worse in 2020 than he did in 2019 on film. Uh, there's some interest, certainly, in Elijah Moore from uh, Old Miss, who's very dynamic. There's, you know, a, a group It's like kind of pick your flavor. The one that was the most interesting to me, and I'm not he will not be the fourth receiver taken, I don't think, is Josh Palmer, who's actually a teammate of Elijah Moore. When he was in high school, uh, he was on the St. Thomas Aquinas team where he was really the fourth best receiver. He goes to Tennessee. Obviously, as you know the story, they don't have good quarterback play. There's also a lot of just a lot of stuff swirling around that program. There was a toxicity there that I think you have to play through if you stay through it. But the coaches I talked to really liked his film, liked his film against Alabama going up against Sertan, thought he was really, really a good player. He doesn't have like wow measurables, but this is one of the coaches told me, he was like, he's a guy I think that the receivers coaches probably are higher on than the scouts just because you watch what he did 
in, you know, on film against really good defensive backs. He beat a lot of really good players because he's good against press coverage and he does a lot of little things where it's, you know, strong hands, he's physical. And like I said, he didn't, like, unlike a lot of the guys and even the two you mentioned or the three you mentioned at the top, the, the Alabama guys and Chase, wasn't like he played with a good quarterback. The guy who's just fallen off the face of the earth that really surprises me is Rondell Moore. And I know that injuries may be the big factor there, but his freshman season was about as dominant yes, a season as I've seen from a freshman in college football uh, at that position. And, and doing it, obviously, on a, on a not one of the traditional powerhouses. Injuries are the thing. You worry about, it was his freshman year. He's very, he's very short. So he's seen as a slot only guy, whereas Jalen Waddle could be can be more than that. Devontae Smith can be more than that. I think you could see some some playmaking stuff from him, no doubt, because he's explosive. But they worry about you know what he's been hurt for two years in a row. How would he handle a seventeen game season plus extra games? And that is something that I think you know. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a you know, high second round pick though. If nothing else, I think he could be a stud return guy for you. I mean, I think if you're worried about workload and whatnot, he, you know, Devin Hester is always the name that comes up in that category, but a guy who is a decent receiver, but an amazing special team guy. Yeah, look, and I think people see that in Jalen Waddle, to be honest, but a, but a better player, um, yeah. a better all-around player. Okay, uh, smaller story, sure you're following it, kind of news about overtime rules, and James Birdsong brings it up. Bruce and Stu, the NCAA released changes to overtime rules that go into effect this upcoming season. Those changes are teams will be required to run a two-point conversion play after, once the game reaches a second overtime period. So that used to be if it reached a third overtime period. And the big one, if the game reaches a third overtime, teams will run alternating two-point plays instead of starting at the uh, opponent's 25-yard line. This was put in place a couple years ago, I think, if it went into a fifth overtime. Now it could come up pretty quickly. These new overtime rules seem more focused on ending the game rather than giving us the most accurate result. Was there a push for this? It seems very abrupt and unexpected. Bruce, I think he's right. I think that and that one AM LSU game just freaked everybody out about player safety. And now they just want to get guys off the field before they before the injury risk is too much. I'm all for it. I mean I think that makes sense. I mean look I love the overtime games, but I think it'll just ratchet up the the drama even more. So, you know, if it's a if you can still keep the um the excitement of the game and keep it on a, on high and and maybe do something to help because these games do get super long especially where there's tv breaks worked in and timeouts. so i don't i don't have a problem with it at all do you i'm a little hesitant about it but i will say that you know once you get past a certain maybe even to the second overtime in a college game there's no defense the, the defensive players are exhausted that you know that they're not Maybe it'd be a different thing if the team had to drive down the field, but asking an offense to get 25 yards against a completely worn out defense is not asking much. So it's weird to think about the game basically coming down to who has the better two point conversion call. But I did watch that Virginia Tech UNC game a couple years ago that went to six overtimes and it was really exciting. Uh, now that was a fairly, you know, that, that game didn't have a lot of ramifications. I could see people being annoyed if like the LSU Alabama game comes down to a two point conversion derby. You know what? I think people just get used to it, right? We always, we hate change and then it happens and we get used to it. All right. Thanks for the email, James. Um, we are going to save the others 
for next week. And you can send your emails as well to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing what happens with this playoff debate and, of course, seeing what happens Thursday night with the draft. We'll see you guys next time.